At the Home Depot, we have Black Friday savings all through November. And with that comes a joyful holiday bustle that we just love to hear. Although we also love the sound that comes after the holidays. When people put their new tools to use. In fact, we love it so much. When you buy select Milwaukee M18 kits, you'll get an extra tool for free. So after you're done filling the air with holiday magic, you can fill it with the sounds of doing. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. You're listening to Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio with your reader, Anna Mercer. Our book is Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. Chapter 8, The Trading Cluster. Tom was dreaming of Catherine. She was walking arm in arm with him through the familiar rooms of the museum, only there were no curators or guildsmen about, nobody to say, polish the floor, Natsworthy, or does the 43rd century glassware. He was showing her around the place as if he owned it, and she was smiling at him as he explained the details of the replica airships and the great cutaway model of London. Through it all a strange, moaning music sounded, and it wasn't until they reached the Natural History Gallery that they realised it was the blue whale singing to them. The dream faded, but the weird notes of the whale's song lingered. He was lying on a quivering wooden deck. Wooden walls rose on either side, with morning sunlight glinting through the gaps between the planks, and overhead a mad confusion of pipes and ducts and tubes crawled over the ceiling. It was Speedwell's plumbing, and its burblings and grumbles were what he had mistaken for the song of the whale. He rolled over and looked around the tiny room. Hester was sitting against the far wall. She nodded when she saw that he was awake. Where am I? he groaned. I didn't know anybody really said that, she said. I thought that was just in books. Where am I? How interesting. No, really, Tom protested, looking around at the rough walls and the narrow metal door. Is this still Speedwell? What happened? The food, of course, she replied. You mean Rayland drugged us? But why? He got up and made his way to the door across the pitching deck. Don't bother, Hester warned him. It's locked. He tried it anyway, she was right. Next, he stumbled over to peer through a crack in the wall. Beyond it, he could see a narrow wooden walkway that flickered like a goggle screen picture as the shadow of one of Speedwell's wheels flashed across it. The outcountry was rushing past, looking much rockier and steeper than when he last saw it. We've been heading south by southeast since first light, explained Hester wearily before he could ask. Probably longer, but I was asleep too. Where are they taking us? How should I know? Tom sat down in a heap with his back to the shuddering wall. That's it then, he said. London must be hundreds of miles away. I'll never get home now. Hester said nothing. Her face was white, making the scars stand out even more than usual and blood had soaked into the planking around her injured leg. An hour crawled by, and then another. Sometimes people went hurrying across the walkway outside, their shadows blocking out the skinny shafts of sunlight. The plumbing burbled to itself. At last Tom heard the sound of a padlock being undone. A hatch low down on the door popped open and a face peered in. "'Everybody all right?' it asked. "'All right!' shouted Tom. "'Of course we're not all right!' He scrambled towards the door. 
Rayland was on hands and knees outside, crouching down so he could see through the hatch, which Tom suspected was really a cat flap. Behind him were the booted feet of some of his men standing guard. "'What have you done this for?' Tom asked. "'We haven't done you any harm.' The old mare looked embarrassed. "'That's true, dear boy, but times are hard, you see, cruel hard these days. No fun running the traction town. We have to take what we can get. So we took you. We're going to sell you as slaves, you see. That's how it is. There'll be some slave in towns at the cluster and we're going to sell you. It has to be done. We need spare parts for our engines if we're to keep a step ahead of the bigger towns.' "'Sell us?' Tom had heard of cities that used slaves to work their engine rooms, but it had always seemed like something distant and exotic that would never affect him. "'I've got to catch London. You can't sell me.' "'Oh, I'm sure you'll fetch a good price,' Rayland said, as if it was something Tom should be pleased about. "'A handsome, healthy lad like you will make sure you go to a good owner.' I don't know about your friend, of course. She looks half dead and she was no oil painting to start with. But maybe we can sell you off together. Buy one, get one free sort of thing. He pushed two bowls through the flap. Round metal bowls, such as a dog would eat from. One contained water, the other more of the bluish algae. Eat up, he said cheerfully. We want you looking nice and well fed for the auction. We'll be at the cluster by sundown and sell you in the morning. But, Tom protested. Yes, I know, and I'm terribly sorry about it, but what can I do? said Rayland sadly. Times are hard, you know. The hatch slammed shut. What about my CD? shouted Tom. There was no answer. He heard Rayland's voice in the passage outside, talking to the guard, then nothing. He cupped his hands and drank some water, then took the bowl across to Hester. We've got to get away, he told her. How? Tom looked around their cell. The door was no use, locked and guarded as it was. He peered up at the plumbing until he had a crick in his neck, but although some of the pipes looked big enough for a person to crawl through, he could see no way to get into them, or even to reach them. Anyway, he wouldn't have fancied crawling through whatever that thick fluid was which he could hear gurgling inside them. He turned his attention to the wall, feeling his way along the planks, at last he found one that felt slightly loose, and gradually, as he worked at it, it started to get looser still. It was slow, hard, painful work. Tom's fingers filled with splinters, and the sweat ran down his face, and he had to stop each time someone passed along the walkway outside. Hester watched silently, until he started to feel cross with her for not helping. But by evening, as the sky outside turned red, and the racing townlet started to slow, he had made a gap just wide enough to get his head through. He waited until there was sure that there was no one about, then leant out. Speedwell was passing through the shadows of some tall spines of rock, the town-gnawed cores of old mountains. Ahead lay a natural amphitheatre, a shallow bowl between more rock spires, and it was full of towns. Tom had never seen so many trading suburbs and traction villages but gathered in one place before. We're here, he told Hester. It's the trading cluster. Speedwell slowed and slowed, manoeuvring into a space between a ragged little sail-powered village and a larger market town. Tom could hear the people on the new towns hailing Speedwell, asking where it had come from and what it had to trade. Scrap metal, he heard Mrs Rayland bellow back, and some wood and a pretty seedy and two fine, fresh, healthy young slaves. Oh, quirk, 
muttered Tom, working away at enlarging the hole he had made. "'It'll never be big enough,' said Hester, who always expected the worst, and was usually right. "'You could try helping instead of just sitting there,' Tom snapped back, but he regretted it at once, for he could see that she was very ill. He wondered what would happen if she was too weak to escape. He couldn't run off into the out-country alone and leave her there. But if he stayed, he would end up as a slave on one of these filthy little towns. He tried not to think about it, and concentrated on making the hole bigger, while the sky outside grew dark and the moon rose. He could hear music and laughter drifting across the trading cluster, and the sounds of gangways being run out as some of Raylan's people went off to enjoy themselves aboard the other towns. He scrabbled and scratched at the hole, prizing at the planks, scraping at them with a rusty nail, but it was no use. At last, desperate, he turned to Hester and hissed, Please, help! The girl stood up unsteadily and walked over to where he crouched. She looked sick, but not quite as bad as he'd feared. Perhaps she had been saving herself, harbouring her last reserves of strength until it was dark enough to escape. She felt around the edges of the hole he had made and nodded. Then, leaning all her weight on Tom's shoulder, she swung her good foot up hard against the wall. Once, twice she kicked it, the wood around the hole splintering and yielding, and at the third kick a whole section of planking fell out, spilling across the walkway outside. "'I could have done that,' said Tom, staring at the ragged hole and wondering why he hadn't thought of it. "'But you didn't, did you?' said Hester, and tried to smile. It was the first time he had seen her smile, an ugly, crooked thing, but very welcome. It made him feel that she was starting to like him and didn't just regard him as an annoyance. Come on then, she said, if you're coming. Hundreds of miles away across the moonlit mud, Shrike spots something. He signals to the engineer pilots, who nod and grumble as they steer the Goshawk 90 down to land. What now? How much longer are we going to keep flying back and forth along these track marks before he'll admit the kids are dead? But they grumble quietly. They're terrified of Shrike. The hatch opens and Shrike stalks out. His green eyes sweep from side to side until he finds what he is looking for. A rag of white fabric from a torn shirt, soggy with rain, half buried in the mud. Hester Shaw was here he tells the out-country at large, and begins sniffing for her scent. Chapter 9. The Jenny Hanover At first it looked as if their luck might hold. They scrambled quickly across the dimly lit walkway and down into the shadows under one of Speedwell's wheel arches. They could see the dark bulks of the other towns, with lights burning in their windows and a big bonfire on the top deck of one of them, a mining townlet on the far side of the cluster where a noisy party was in progress. They crept along the outside edge of Speedwell to a place where a gangplank stretched across to the market town which was parked next door. It was unguarded but brightly lit, and as they reached the far end and stepped onto the deck of the market town, a voice somewhere behind them shouted, Hey! And then louder, Hey! Hey! Uncle Rayland! Them slaves escaping! They ran, or rather Tom ran, and dragged Hester alongside, along beside him, hearing her whimper in pain at every step. Up a stairway, along a catwalk, past a shrine to Peripatetia, goddess of wandering towns, and they were in a market square lined with big iron cages, in some of which thin, miserable slaves were waiting to be sold off. 
Tom forced himself to slow down and tried to look inconspicuous, listening all the time for sounds of pursuit. There were none. Maybe the Raylands had given up the chase, or maybe they weren't allowed to chase people onto other towns. Tom didn't know what the rules were in a trading cluster. Head for the bows, said Hester, letting go his arm and pulling the collar of her coat up to hide her face. If we're lucky, there'll be an air harbour at the bows. They were lucky. At the front of the town's top deck was a raised section where half a dozen small airships were tethered, their dark, gas-filled envelopes like sleeping whales. Are we going to steal one? Tom whispered. Not unless you know how to fly an airship, said Hester weakly. There's an airman's cafe over there. We'll have to try and book passage like normal people. The cafe was just an ancient, rusting airship gondola that had been bolted to the deck. A few metal tables stood in front beneath a stripy awning. Hurricane lamps were burning there, and an old aviator slumped, snoring in a chair. The the only other customer was a sinister-looking oriental woman in a long, red leather coat who sat in the shadows near the bar. In spite of the dark, she wore sunglasses, the tiny lenses black as the wing cases of beetles. She turned to stare at Tom as he walked up to the counter. A small man with a huge, drooping moustache was polishing glasses. He glanced up without much interest when Tom said, I'm looking for a ship. Where to? London, said Tom. Me and my friend have to get back to London and we have to leave tonight. London, is it? The man's moustachios twitched like the tails of two squirrels which had been shoved up his nose and were starting to get a bit restless. Only ships with a licence from the London Merchants Guild can dock there. We've got nothing like that here. Staines ain't that sort of town. Perhaps I may be of help, suggested a soft, foreign-sounding voice at Tom's shoulder. The woman in the red coat had come silently to his side. A lean, handsome woman with badgery slashes of white in her short black hair. Reflections of the hurricane lamps danced in her sunglasses, and when she smiled, Tom noticed that her teeth were stained red. I haven't a licence for London, but I am going to Airhaven. You could find a ship there that will take you the rest of the way. Have you some money? Tom hadn't thought about that part. He rummaged in his tunic and fished out two tatty banknotes with the face of Quirk on the front and Magnus Croom gazing sternly from the back. He had put them in his pocket the night he fell out of London, hoping to spend them at the catch party in Kensington Gardens. Here, under the fizzing hurricane lamps of the air harbour, they looked out of place, like toy money. The woman seemed to think so too. Ah, she said, twenty quirks. But notes like that can only be spent in London. Not much use to a poor wandering skyfarer like me. Don't you have any gold? Or old tech? Tom shrugged and mumbled something. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw some newcomers pushing their way between the tables. Look, Uncle Rayland! he heard one of them shout. Here they are, we've got them! Tom looked round and saw Rayland and a couple of his boys closing in, carrying heavy clubs. He grabbed Hester, who was leaning against the counter, barely conscious. One of the Speedwell men moved to cut off their escape, but the woman in the red coat barred his way, and Tom heard her say... These are my passengers. I was just arranging a fee. There are slaves, shouted Rayland, pushing past her. Tom Nitsworthy and his friend. Found him in the outcountry, fair and square. Finders keepers. 
Tom hurried Hester across the metal deck, past stairways leading up to the quays where the airships moored. He could hear Raylan's men splitting up, shouting to each other as they searched, then a grunt and a crash as if one of them had fallen over. Good, he thought, but he knew that the others would soon find him. He dragged Hester up a short iron stairway to the quays. There were lights in some of the ships that hung at anchor there, and he had a vague idea about forcing his way aboard one of them and making them take him to London. But he had nothing that would serve as a weapon, and before he could look for one, there were feet ringing on the ladder behind him, and Rayland's voice saying, "'Please try and be reasonable, Mr Nitsworthy. I don't want to have to hurt you. Fred!' he added. "'I've got the rotters cornered. Fred!' Tom felt the hope drain out of him. There was no escape now. He stood there meekly as Rayland stepped forward into the light from the portholes of a nearby airship, hefting his club. Hester slumped against a dockside winch and moaned. "'It's only fair,' said Rayland, as if he thought she was complaining. "'I don't like this slaving lark any more than you do. But times are hard, and we did catch you. There's no denying it.' Suddenly, faster than Tom would have thought possible, Hester moved. She dragged a metal lever out of the winch and swung it at Rayland. His club went whirling out of his hand and hit the deck with a glockenspiel sound, and the metal bar struck him a glancing blow on the side of his head. "'Ow!' he wailed, crumpling to the floor. Hester lurched forward and raised the bar again, but before she could bring it down on the old man's skull, Tom grabbed her arm. "'Stop! You'll kill him!' So. She swung towards him, snaggle teeth bared, looking like a demented monkey. So? He's right, my dear, said a gentle voice. There is no need to finish him. Out of the shadows stepped the woman from the bar, her red coat swirling around her ankles as she walked towards them. I think we should get aboard my ship before the rest of his people come looking for you. You said we didn't have enough money, Tom reminded her. You don't, Mr Nitsworthy, said the aviatrix, but I can hardly stand by and watch you taken away to be sold as slaves, can I? I was a slave myself once, and I wouldn't recommend it. She had taken off her glasses. Her eyes were dark and almond-shaped, and fine webs of laughter lines crinkled at their corners when she smiled. Besides, she added, you intrigue me. Why is a Londoner wandering about in the hunting ground getting into trouble? She held out her hand to Tom, a long brown hand with the thin machinery of bones and tendons clearly visible, sliding under papery skin. How do we know you won't betray us like Rayland did? he demanded. You don't, of course, she laughed. You'll just have to trust me. After Valentine and the Raylands, Tom didn't think he would ever be able to trust anybody again, but this strange foreigner was the only hope he had. All right, he said, but Rayland got my name wrong. It's Natsworthy. And mine is Fang, said the woman, Miss Anna Fang. She still had her hand outstretched as if he was a scared animal she wanted to tame, and she was still smiling her alarming red smile. My ship is on Air Key 6. So they went with her, and somewhere in the oily shadows under the quays, they stepped over Rayland's companions who lay slumped against a stanchion with their heads lolling drunkenly. Are they... whispered Tom. Out cold, said Miss Fang. I'm afraid I just don't know my own strength. Tom wanted to stop and check that the men were all right, 
but she led him quickly past and up a ladder to Key 6. The ship that hung at anchor there was not the elegant sky-clipper Tom had been expecting. In fact, it was little more than a shabby scarlet gas bag and a cluster of rusty engine pods bolted to wooden gondola. It's made of junk, he gasped. Junk? laughed Miss Fang. Why, the Jenny Hanover is built from bits of the finest airships that ever flew. An envelope of silicon silk from a Shangguo clipper. Twin Junecaro aero engines of a Paris gunship. The reinforced gas cells of a Spitsbergen war balloon. It's amazing what you can find in the scrapyards. She led them up the gangplank into the cramped, spice-smelling gondola. It was just a narrow wooden tube with a flight deck at the front and Miss Fang's quarters at the stern, a jumble of other little cabins in between. Tom had to keep ducking to avoid braining himself on overhead lockers and dangerous-looking bundles of cables that hung from instrument panels on the roof. But the aviatrix flitted around with practised ease, mumbling in some strange foreign tongue as she set switches, pulled levers and lit dim green electrics which filled the cabin with an aquarium glow. She laughed when she saw Tom's worried look. That is Esperanto, the common language of the sky. It's a lonely life on the bird roads, and I have a habit of talking to myself. She pulled on a final lever, and the creak and sigh of gas valves echoed through the gondola. There was a clang as the magnetic docking clamps released, and the radio crackled into life and snapped. Jenny Hanover, this is the Staines Harbour Board. You are not cleared for departure. But the Jenny Hanover was departing anyway. Tom felt his stomach turn over as she lifted into the midnight sky. He scrambled to a porthole and saw the market town falling away below. Then Speedwell came into view and soon the whole cluster was spread out below him like a display of model towns in the museum. Jenny Hanover, insisted the loudspeaker, return to your berth at once. We have a request from the Speedwell Town Council that you give up your passengers or they will be forced to... Boring, trilled Miss Fang, flicking the radio off. A homemade rocket battery on the roof of Speedwell Town Hall spat a fizzing flock of missiles after them. Three hissed harmlessly past. A fourth exploded off the starboard quarter, making the gondola swing like a pendulum, and the fifth came even closer. Anna Fang raised an eyebrow at that one, while Tom and Hester ducked for cover like frightened rabbits. Then they were out of range. The Jenny Hanover was climbing into the cold, clear spaces of the night, and the trading cluster was just a distant smear of light beneath the clouds. Chapter 10. The Thirteenth Floor Elevator It rained that night on London, but by first light the sky was as clear and pale as still water, and the smoke from the city's engines rose straight up into the windless air. Wet decks shone silver in the sunrise, and all the banners of Tier 1 hung limp and still against their flagpoles. It was a fine spring morning, the morning that Valentine had been hoping for and Catherine had been dreading. It was perfect flying weather. Although it was so early, crowds had gathered all along the edge of Tier 1 to watch the 13th floor elevator lift off. As Gensch drove Catherine and her father over to the air key, she saw that Circle Park was crowded too. It looked as if the whole of High London had come to cheer Valentine on his way. None of them knew where he was going, of course, but as London sped eastward, the city's rumour mills had been grinding night and day. 
everyone was sure that Valentine's expedition was connected with some huge prize that the Lord Mayor hoped to catch out in the central hunting ground. Temporary stands had been erected for the council and guilds, and when she and Dog had wished Father goodbye in the bustling shadows of the hangar, Catherine went to take her place with the historians, squeezed between Chudley Pomeroy and Dr Arkengarth. All around her stood the great and good of London, the sober black robes of Father's Guild and the purple of the Guild of Merchants, sombre navigators in their neat green tunics and a row of engineers robed and hooded in white rubber, looking like novelty erasers. Even Magnus Croom had risen to the occasion, and the Lord Mayor's ancient chain of office hung gleaming round his thin neck. Catherine wished they had all just stayed at home. It was difficult saying goodbye to someone when you were part of a great cheering mob all waving flags and blowing kisses. She stroked Dog's knobbly head and told him, Look, there's Father, going up the gangplank now. They'll start the engines in a moment. I just hope nothing goes wrong muttered Dr Arkengarth. One hears stories about these airships suddenly going off bang for no reason. Perhaps we should stand a little further back, suggested Miss Plym, the museum's twittery curator of furniture. Oh, nonsense, Catherine told them crossly. Nothing is going to go wrong. Yes, do shut up, Arkengarth, you silly old coot, agreed Chudley Pomeroy, surprising her. Never fear, Miss Valentine. Your father has the finest airship and the best pilots in the world. Nothing can go wrong. Catherine smiled gratefully at him, but she kept her fingers crossed just the same, and Dog caught something of her mood and started to whimper softly. From inside the hangar came the sound of hatches slamming shut and the rattle of boarding ladders being dragged clear. An expectant hush fell over the stands. Along the tier's edge, High London held its breath. Then, as the band struck up, Rule Londinium, Valentine's ground crew began dragging the 13th floor elevator out into the sunlight, a sleek black dart whose armoured envelope shone like silk. On the open platform at the stern of the control gondola, Valentine stood waving. He saluted the ground crew and the flag-decked stands and then smiled straight at Catherine, picking her face out of all the others without a moment's hesitation. She waved back frantically and the crowd cheered themselves hoarse as the 13th floor elevator's engine pods swivelled into takeoff position. The ground crew cast off the mooring hawsers, the propellers began to turn and blizzards of confetti eddied in the downdrafts as the huge machine lifted into the air. Some apprentice historians spread out a, va- a banner reading Happy Valentine's Day and the cheers went on and on as if the crowds thought it was their love alone which was keeping the explorer airborne. Valentine! Valentine! But Valentine took no notice of the noise or the flags. He stood watching Catherine, one hand raised in farewell, until the airship was so high and far away that she could not make him out any more. At last... When the elevator was just a speck in the eastern sky and the stands were emptying, she wiped away her tears, took Dog's lead and turned to go home. She was already missing her father, but she had a plan now. While he was away, she would make her own inquiries and find out who that mysterious girl had been and why she scared him so. That's the end of this chapter of Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. Tune in next time for more from Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio.
redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.